I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Good Pods. It's a really amazing app where you can follow your smartest, funniest, most curious podcast junkie friends and other people you admire to see what podcasts they're listening to, and it's all by episode. So I know I have my own podcast, but even I find myself overwhelmed by how many episodes there are of other podcasts and what I should listen to next. So Good Pods is still in beta, and they're looking for testers who will give them honest feedback. So you can go to Good Pods on the App Store or Google Play and check out which podcast your friends are listening to. And by the way, go on there and show them that you're listening to my podcast. That would really be awesome. So anyway, Good Pods was founded by a friend I used to work with many moons ago in, I guess, 1999, which really ages me here. But anyway, JJ Ramberg and I used to work together at a big company called Idealab. If anybody heard of that, she was with the site called cooking.com and I was with Idealab. And now she started Good Pods, among many other endeavors that she's done. Um, and this she's done with her brother, Brad Ramberg, who was also at Idealab with me. So all comes full circle. So anyway, thank you to JJ and Brad and everybody uh, at Good Pods for sponsoring this episode and for making a new searchable listening tracking thing for podcasts, which is going to be super helpful in helping people find great podcasts, hopefully like mine. (laughs) Thank you. I'm excited to be talking to Stephanie Dandler today, who's the author of the international bestseller, Sweet Bitter, and the executive producer of the Sweet Bitter series on stars. Stray, a memoir, her latest book comes out in May, 2020. Her writing has appeared in the Sewanee Review, Vogue, the New York Times Book Review, and the Paris Review Daily, among many other publications. Her nonfiction received an honorable mention in the Best American Essays 2018, and her criticism won the 2019 Robert B. Hellman Award from the Sewanee Review. A graduate of Kenyon College with an MFA from the New School in Fiction, Stephanie currently lives in Los Angeles with her husband, her toddler, and her soon-to-be daughter. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for coming on Moms Now Time to Read Books. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I wish we were talking in person, but this is this is a really good substitute. Better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. This is what we're all having to do right now. Yes, we're Skyping mid-coronavirus while everybody's at home. So, But I have to say, Stray has gotten me out of my own head more than almost anything else lately because it's so immersive and beautifully written and I just needed it right now. And it came for me at like such a good time to just get into your head (laughs) and the way you see the world. So Mm. it was like a gift for me. And I don't always say that. So I just wanted to say that from the start. Well, thank you. Can you tell listeners what Stray is about? Stray is a memoir about the months when I returned home to California. I moved there from New York City and I had reckoning with my past, with my parents, with my childhood in California. It is about being the child of addicts and the inheritance of damage. And I think that so often when we look at the sort of genetic factors of addiction, we're looking at a one-to-one ratio, which is my mom's an alcoholic, therefore I'm an alcoholic. And while that wasn't my story, I think the period of time I'm writing about it as in Stray is when I realized that I had inherited a lot of their darkness and their 
recklessness and their propensity for self-harm, even if I wasn't technically an alcoholic or a crystal meth addict. And so the book is about trying to move past that and give myself a different life or a possibility for a different life. Did it help you to write it emotionally or was it really hard? Like, how was it to go into all of that? It did not help. No, it was very... (laughs) It was a horrible mistake. It was a mistake. (laughs) It wasn't a mistake. The book, I wrote it so quickly and with such urgency. And there was a lot of force behind it, which I think you can feel when you read it. Very, It's very raw. But I, living with that part of myself, with the darkest parts of myself, was really difficult especially given that I was writing it while I was a brand new mother. Uh, My son was five months old when I started the first draft and the sort of disparity between having this family and having a wonderful supportive partner and this beautiful, healthy child, which is a miracle. And then going back in time to a person that I was who didn't believe that any of that was possible was really hard. It was hard to traverse. It was hard to be in the office and to come out and nurse and just (laughs) connect with my son and my husband. And then I am so grateful now that people are reading it and the way that they're responding, really smart people that I admire. I get notes. I'm getting notes and feedback and people are moved by it. And so that's really gratifying, but I don't feel great about the book itself. It it feels like such a dark book to me. And I think it will just take time. I don't think it being dark is anything negative. It's not. It's just, I think in comparison to something like Sweet Bitter, which had an element of fun and levity mm-hmm. to it, this book doesn't have it. And I think about my children reading it. I'm now pregnant again, and I'm having a girl, which somehow seems more fraught to me. (laughs) I don't know if that's true or not, but it, based on my own relationship with my mother, I feel like I'm entering into potentially complicated territory, but I think about my children reading it and I just hope that they can, I hope that what comes across at the end of that book is about hope and love and connection and not just a catalog of ways that I've been hurt. <laughs> it doesn't come across that, that way. It yeah. Would, I mean, everybody has the circumstances into which they were born, and this is how you process yours and in a very place-oriented, time-period-constricted way. And I think it was really awesome. I mean, it thank helped. You. I mean, worked for me. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's And it's great to hear from readers. It's also happening so quickly. Like, I started that first draft less than a year ago. And so that's why I think it's going to take some time to process and feel the sort of like period at the end of the sentence. It just doesn't, it feels kind of like open and loose and everywhere all around me still. But Um, you you did choose, like, did you want to write it? Like, did anyone tell you you had to write it? Like, no, why? I wasn't, I was under, I am under contract for a second book from Knopf, but I, Sweet Bitter season two, the television show wrapped four days before I gave birth to my son. Oh my gosh. And I was so ready to talk about something else, 
to write about not a 22-year-old girl or not the restaurant industry. I love both those things, and I'm so grateful that I got to delve into them deeply. But I had been sitting on this book for years. And so my editor flew out to LA when my son was seven weeks old and we had lunch. And it was my first time leaving the house and like my boobs are leaking and I've still got like maternity (laughs) pants on. And I was like, do I have a glass of wine at lunch? Am I still a human? What's happening? (laughs) And he said, you know, your next book is due in a month. They, They set up deadlines. And I'm like, Peter, that's a joke. (laughs) I have not written a word and I have a seven week old baby. And he said, well, when do you think the next book will be ready? And I could have said 2022. They don't force you to write these books. But I said, June, I was like, end of June, I can do it. I, and I think I was just wanting one to still be a writer I think that the postpartum period, if you are a creative or professional or let's say for any woman, your sense of identity is so shaken. And I wanted to feel like a writer again, but I also had been wanting to work on this book for a long time. So I gave myself the deadline of the end of June and I turned in the first week of July. That's not bad. It's pretty close. (laughs) It was very close. Very close. Yeah, it's so hard to go back and forth. I mean, I feel like even if I like sit and watch a sad movie or I'm like have a difficult conversation to then like open the door and go be a mom and be all upbeat and mom-ish is hard. So for you to have to spend, I know your baby was so little, but even just to that on-off switch, it's a lot. (laughs) There was a lot of crying. I think when I look back on that period of time, we went to extraordinary lengths at a practical level in order to ensure that I could write the book. I mean, we moved to Europe. We sublet our home. My husband quit his job. We did everything possible, but when I, and it was a beautiful time period, and that's why I was able to write it so quickly. It was just a lot of crying. Baby's crying, mom's crying, husband's drinking. (laughs) He's like trying to have a glass of wine and some Hamon Serrano and everyone's crying. Um, So it was not seamless. No. I feel like that mirrors the the traditional path. I feel like no writer says, oh, that worked out. You know, how easy was that? You know, I feel like most of the time it's like a messy in it type process, but this is just particularly more, (laughs) more so than maybe most. (laughs) I think that I kind of mythologize these writers who worked with daily schedules and wrote six days a week, a thousand words a day. You always hear about those people that really show up at the desk. And I am just not so well integrated. I had to remove myself several time zones away from my life in order to find the focus. And I needed a Beyond, at one point I was interviewing nannies and, you know, you're talking about hours and 40 hours a week, it doesn't cut it to write a book. <laughs> they just, I'm like, I need to be able to go to work until 8 p.m. if I need to. And so I really, really could not have done it if I didn't have a primary caretaker for those months. Yeah, I just wish I didn't have to upend my life. But uh, that is the way this book 
needed to be written. That's great because now every book you write, you can pick a new exotic locale and just like settle in and justify it. Totally, totally. I might be divorced, but (laughs) totally can do that. (laughs) Uh, Side effects, you know. 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 (laughs) Uh. So I, before we talk more about the book, I have to just fast forward to like the present day because I read your Sawani review article about how you were stuck in Hawaii and you had gone there on vacation. And as you were there, the whole coronavirus panic sort of broke out and you wrote this beautiful, like, literally, I felt like I was reading your diary of what should you do? Like, it was like, mm-hmm. like well, she, she could have like emailed this to me basically, but you were like, <laughs> had I put my family at risk, others at risk? Are we thoughtless and reckless people? Will we be trapped here? Are we safer in dense germ-ridden Los Angeles, pacing our 800 square foot house with a toddler? Or are we safer on this island, meaning Hawaii, cooking all our own food, isolated in nature where my son Julian collects pieces of coral in a bucket? Underneath of that, the one question, the only one any human can be thinking right now, are we safe? No, we are not safe. And then you ended the article and didn't tell the reader what happened. So I was like, tell me what happened. (laughs) So Adam Ross, the editor at the Sewanee Review, asked for a letter, a slice of life letter, as if we were writing him about where we were on March 14th. And at that point, writing that letter, I had been calling Delta for it on a Monday. I'd been calling Delta since Saturday. I could not get through. I had been on the callback list twice. And then finally, Delta just said, please call back at another time and disconnected people. We were on the verge of just going to the airport to fly standby. But anyone with kids knows that that is a last, last, last resort that you don't want to be hanging around an airport for six hours, maybe getting on a flight. And at the same time, we were fine. We were cooking our food. Julian had plenty of space to play. There were no other people around. We hadn't had contact with anyone. I mean, there were other people staying in condos, but I hadn't been in a a restaurant or in the same room with people in over a week. And we really did not know what to do. The news was coming so quickly and changing hour by hour. And then this rainstorm started. And the bridge connecting the town we were in, Hanalei Bay, to the rest of the island of Kauai went underwater. And we, even if we had wanted to go fly standby, we couldn't get out of Hanalei Bay with no clue of where it was ending. And so that letter is really a slice of when is this rain going to stop? What's going to happen to us? Now, what happened to us is that night the power went out on the entire island of Kauai. It happened around seven o'clock. My husband and I went to bed. We were like, this is not great. We have a whole fridge full of food and an electric stove in this unit and a toddler who eats more than I do. And we woke up in the morning, still no power. By the afternoon, I was starting to panic. The hotel had made like bowls of canned chili on a grill in the parking lot. And I can't do that. (laughs) I can. This is not an issue of snobbishness. I'm a terrible snob, but I also, I just can't feed that to my son for multiple meals. And the supermarket in town got a generator. And what happened was, 
a friend of a friend had an open cottage with a generator. I'm not kidding. This was so crazy and random. And the friend of a friend said, please go stay there. It was a beautiful cottage, cottage that's nicer than my home that I live in. The power was out for 24 hours, but we had a generator and it was a gas stove. And I went from eating crackers and canned chili to being able to, you know, make meals for my son. The bridge did not get out of water for two days. And at that point, we were 24 hours away from our original flight. Oh and we, those last, it did not stop raining. <laughs> wow. We took our flight home and I mean, I, re- relief, we're relieved to be home. Hawaii was, is very beautiful. I think that even as you were just saying about New York City before we started this podcast, I think the desire to be close to your home, even if you know that it might technically not be as safe as someplace else. Is really strong in all of us right now. It's an illusion of control. It's my home. It's my bed. That's my market that I go to. And here we are. You and I are both sitting in it. We're in the <laughs> middle of a, a self-quarantine, shelter-in-place order in Los Angeles and similar in New York City. Yeah. It's really hard to believe. <laughs> I know. And I feel like that's a go back to the book because you're probably sick of talking about it, but I... No, please. You know, I feel like your book is so much about that sense of home and the search for home and what does it mean and going Mm -hmm. home again and revisiting and having to deal with your parents again and all the stuff that opens up, right? So sometimes I feel like going home is maybe the most painful choice you can make (laughs) in a way. Absolutely. I think I had spent a lot of that year that I moved back here, 2015, traveling. And there were very lovely places that I could have ended up if I really wanted to leave New York. And I could have just stayed in New York. I did feel this pull to know this city again as an adult. And I did not realize how complicated it would be, of course. And when I got here, I think that the landscape of California has this sort of fragile, volatile, doomed quality to it, the way that the hills don't hold in place, the way that we go into droughts, then into mudslides, then into fires. And I realized that while I had taken all of that for granted as a child, that anxiety had really come to define my life. And I couldn't reckon with that anxiety from New York City. I had to be here. And what I found is that this city is nothing like what I remember it as and seeing it from adult eyes and with the help of someone, the love interest in the book who has a completely different lens on the world than I do. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I'll leave California. I mean, I might leave LA, but I, I think this is where I live now. This is where I want to spend whatever days are left to me. No, don't. That sounds so dire. (laughs) I mean, we're talking. We're like talking about children, but you know. No, I know. Yeah, yeah. you know exactly what I I mean. I know. I know. (laughs) I I had this moment when things were looking particularly grim. Like right now, I mean, not that they look much better, but 
I was sort of convinced that I was going to die in the next like two to three months. This is like a week or two ago. Now I feel like, oh, okay, maybe I won't, but I don't know. Now it was before I sort of settled in here and, you know, like hid (laughs) essentially. And I was like, okay, so if this is the last two or three months of my life, like, how do I want it to go? Do I want to change anything? Like, then I realized, no, (laughs) like (laughs) I still want to do like, Zoom calls and Skypes and, you know, I still want to be busy and I still want to be with the kids and I don't know. And then acknowledging that sort of made things a little easier. So maybe what you're saying, like that you want to stay there forever. It's like, okay, well, you know, just like I'm going to go into cruise control and this is what I got and I'm going to go with this and we'll see what happens. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that I spend so much time fantasizing about different lives, which is how I ended up in Barcelona on a whim to write this book astray. But I think having a sense of belonging here is really different for me. I don't know. I, I think... I have such a complicated, beautiful relationship with New York City, like everyone who lives there. But I never, ever, a single day that I lived there thought I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. And so I think that that feeling is now what I equate with home. And it could have been Portland, Oregon, or Boulder, Colorado, or the Catskills at a certain point. But it's California. It's the Pacific Ocean. There's something, there's something about it that has settled that question for me. You grew up in the city. I'm there because I'm from there. Like, I feel like if I had been born in a small town in Kansas, I would be there too. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's, but anyway, there's something about coming home to where you kind of started, where it all began. But for a while, Mm -hmm. I did live in Laurel Canyon, which is part of your book. I lived right in Wonderland. And that was so funny because I was like, I didn't even realize when I lived there, people were like, did you hear about the murders? And I was like, ah, is that why I got this great deal on this rental? (laughs) (laughs) I was 21 years old. So like, what did I know? But anyway. I mean, Laurel Canyon is really this bubble, the land that time forgot. It's so beautiful. I miss it all the time. But I really equate it with being alone. And I don't know that I could have the life I have now with the walk. It's, it's not very walkable. No. Did you notice that? Yes, I it's did notice really, that. It's really, it's really <laughs> I could barely drive. I could really drive there. It's like the roads are so, it was, yeah. Not totally. A, yes. So, but I do think of it fondly, especially when in spring months, when everything gets so green. After you came out with Sweet Bitter and it became a TV show and like all the rest of it, did your head just spin? Like, what was that like for you having all of that success? Like, just come. What was that like? Not to say you didn't work hard at it, but like, what was that? What was that like? How did that change your life? Well, there's, yeah, it changed every aspect of it from the day to day to what I was able to imagine myself doing or what I could aspire to. I first, there is this element of luck and I did work really hard, but what happened with Sweet Bitter was so much bigger than me personally, or any talent I have as a writer, that is about luck and timing. And I was so aware that something like that probably doesn't happen multiple times in a lifetime. And so I said yes to absolutely everything. And so what it felt like to have all that happen was a lot of work, was a lot of, I toured with Sweet Bitter for a year where I only had one month that I didn't travel. I mean, I'd go to Wichita, I'd go to Tampa, Florida. If someone asked me to 
Skype into their book club. I ended up stopping doing that. But in the beginning, I was like, yes, 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 I will be up. I will write for free for any public, any online publication. I mean, I totaled it up once and I think I wrote like, and this was early, 70,000 free words insofar as like little pieces or interviews that I wrote back. Yes to everything. And then I was making television and I said, yes, I want to be involved, as involved as possible. I want to work the 22-hour days and be on set at two in the morning. I want to get into arguments about casting. I want to read every script. And so it felt like struggle. Success felt like struggle. And I had enough sense not to be too attached to maintaining it. Like, oh, Sweet Bitter is going to go on forever. This is a television series that's going to go for 10 years. It's the new Friends. I was so aware that it was a moment and I would never get another chance like that. And very easily, I could have a really nice writing career, but I could possibly never have another book that hits like that and still have a very nice career like a lot of writers do. And so... It felt like a lot of work and it felt like a lot of conflict, you know, just in getting work done and in learning an entirely new medium and an entirely new workplace, which is television. And it felt like a lot of my life was on hold, which I think when we got pregnant with Julian and I was living away from my husband, living in New York for six months of that year, doing everything long distance, making television at 30 weeks pregnant. Oh my gosh. I was very ready for that roller coaster to end and see who I was at the end of it. Now, becoming a new mother doesn't really help you see who you are. <laughs> it maybe even it maybe distances you even further. But I think writing Stray helped. Yeah, having months of not traveling helps. Quiet. Well, now you you don't have to travel so much right now with this book. My God, turns out I know, I know. And you know, I was gonna be thirty weeks pregnant for that tour, but I have mixed feelings about it. I think that connecting with readers is a really important part of the job. I often say, and it's not for everyone, but you don't give birth to the child and then drop them off at daycare the next day and say, good luck, you're out in the world. I do think that there is a lot of work that comes after publication if you're up for it, if that's your style. So after Stray, do you have ideas for your next project? I'm working on a novel and it is set in Los Angeles um, in the 90s. Awesome. But very close to my heart. I think I will always kind of write from life. That seems to be my path, at least right now. Seems to be going well. Might as well <laughs> stick with that. Yeah. <laughs> when you run out of material, you cannot <laughs> That's start writing true. about like dystopian, you know, future societies or something. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, I like fantasize about being that kind of writer, of being able to imagine alternate worlds. And I'm so stuck in this world. Nothing about it makes sense to me, but I want to understand. Well, you can tell, you can like feel you sorting it out in the book. And that's, I think, mm -hmm. what 
makes you like just like unable to put it down, right? Because you just like you're so rooting for you and wanting to see what you come up with. So do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Like how did you even learn? Did you learn to write this well? Did you, were you I mean, I know your teacher said to you from very young age, like, oh, you're a writer, but mm. is this, did this just come or did all of your training help? And what advice do you have? That was a lot of questions. Tra- yeah, it was a lot of questions, but I got it. Training does help. I have always written like this. My journals from childhood are really interested in feelings and relationships and questions of identity and fear. And I was drawn at a very young age to poetry, which has informed my style my whole life. Training helps because sentences and a vocabulary are unfortunately, probably 5% of it. There is pacing, there's storytelling, there's an eye for capturing detail. There are lines of dialogue that are wrote and then lines of dialogue that make a piece come alive. And a lot of those things you can learn. And I know that to be true, especially with television. Like I learned so much about writing after feeling like I kind of knew the ins and outs of style. So my advice and the way that I learned all that was just by reading. I mean, I read scripts and I've been a reader before I've been a writer for my entire life. So I still learned by reading. When I wanted to write a memoir, I had no idea how to write a memoir and I had never read most of them. It was a genre that I kind of, didn't disregard it. I was just so interested in fiction and literature with a capital L and poetry that memoir had kind of just fallen by the wayside. And so I read, you know, I read 50 memoirs and I looked at how they were constructed and which ones stuck with me afterwards and what was possible and what are the rules and then how do you break the rules? And Then the other advice that I give to aspiring writers often is to finish what you start. When you have identified yourself as a writer and you're full of ideas and you have this life that's giving you all of these unique experiences and this voice and point of view, it's really easy to start projects over and over and over again. (laughs) And that's I'm going to write a Hunger Games style YA novel today. And today I'm going to write an Ernest Hemingway style short story. And today I'm going to write an elegiac piece about my mother. And when I was in graduate school, Sweet Bitter was the first thing that I turned in. I did not write anything else for the two years I was in school. And I had a book at the end of it. That book needed five drafts before it was ready to be published, but I wouldn't have ever gotten there if I didn't just get to the end. It's so hard, but if you can get to the end of something, then you can look at it and say, oh, this has potential. Oh, this needs help here. But until then, I think it's a, you're just practicing. I love that. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming yeah. on this podcast and Moms Don't Time to Read Books and sharing all of your stories. And I'm such a big fan. I really am. And this book is so good. So thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. It's such a pleasure to chat about this, especially at this time. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's a relief. Yeah. A relief. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks again to Good Pods for sponsoring this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.